Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nitt with HASK. Today you'll hear our June 24th webinar about COVID-19's impact on our personal care establishments. Stay safe. Welcome everybody to uh, this webinar today, uh, brought to you by the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health. We've got a great webinar today. This one is on personal care establishments. We've got some great guest panelists on today to talk about uh, their um, their individual uh, personal care establishments. So we're excited to have their feedback. So again, welcome. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. This has been a, uh, a series of webinars that we've tried to bring to you on different sectors of, of, the, of the workplace um, industry. So we've had some great discussions and we know that today's is gonna be no exception to that. On your screen, you should see a section uh, in which to type in questions. So most of our webinar today is, 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 is based on those questions that you send us. So feel free to type in those questions uh, and we're gonna answer them uh, and answer all of them as much as we can. So without those questions, this webinar can get a little boring. So we, we encourage those questions because that's what keeps our discussion uh, going. Like I said, Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health have collaborated to bring this educational series to, to the public. So we thank you for being here. Both of our um, uh, mission statements have to do with the, the well-being, the health, and the safety of the workplace. So um, what, what better topics to talk about than, than keeping our customers safe when they enter our personal care establishments? Thank you to our, our platinum sponsors at HASC. We couldn't do these types of endeavors without you. We thank you to the, the sponsors and the donors of the, the University of Texas as well. Uh, again, without that participation and giving, some of these things would not be possible. So thank you to our, our sponsors and our, our donors. A brief agenda, we're gonna go over um, uh, a little bit about what Governor Abbott has rolled out in the state of Texas as far as his mandate and what these types of establishments have to do. Uh, we're gonna go over the current trends of this virus as it relates to Texas and some local areas. Uh, gonna go over some correct use of terminology, what it means to wear a mask versus a respirator versus a facial covering. Um, what, are the, what are the current uh, CDC guidelines telling us about this, this virus? It changes almost daily. So we're gonna give you the most uh, up-to-date information on how this virus is doing. But more importantly, the webinar is geared to question and answer. So again, type in those questions. You can start typing them in right now. And when we get to the Q&A part of the webinar, we're gonna go through those and answer them for you. Here's our, our list of the panelists and our guest panelists today. Uh, you can see a wide variety of experts from the University of Texas, as well as the expertise of our guest panelists. And I'm gonna turn that over now to, um, to our, our our UT panelists to introduce our guest panelists. Great, thank you. Well, I'm really excited that um, both Janet and Enrique Chaitas, um, the owners of Chaitas Coiffer in El Paso, could join us today. They have more than 20 years of experience in personal care services. They have trained um, a lot of folks in El Paso and in the region who provide such services and they're mentors to many. So I, I'm so happy that they could join us and provide their insight. Thank you for having Thank you. us. 
Yeah, and I would like to introduce Victor Guerra, um, or commonly known as Coach Vic. He is the San Antonio Regional Coach for Orange Theory Fitness. And uh, if, if uh, you, you're not familiar with Orange Theory, this is a uh, franchise of boutique fitness studios based out of Boca Raton, Florida. And uh, chain includes over 1,200 studios in all 50 states, and they are over in also over 23 countries. And uh, it's uh, it really expanded uh, very aggressively over the past uh, five years. Um, as of 2020, um, the chain has over a million members, but we were just talking before this. That was pre-COVID, and so that number has come down a little bit, but I'm sure that number is going to go back up as soon as this pandemic starts to resolve. And so, Coach Vic, welcome. Excellent. Welcome to all of our guest panelists, and I'm going to turn this over now to Dr. George Delclos. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, glad you could join us today. Every week that we give this uh, webinar, I provide an update as to the situation in the state and also uh, in our area in Houston. Uh, I think uh, everyone has been uh, hearing on the news that uh, lately the situation is not good, um, unfortunately. So what we have here, and we track a variety of different indicators. What we have here is uh, for the state of Texas, the most recent data as of a couple of days ago, the trends in the total number of new cases of COVID beginning back in March, back here, and then um, as it's gone through the shelter in place, you see that originally when shelter in place was implemented around the third week of March or thereabouts, and two weeks later, we started to see the effects, the beneficial effects of that shelter in place with the numbers flattening uh, off and almost and beginning to hint that, that they might start declining. Then on May 1st, uh, pursuant to the governor's order, we began the reopening by phases. And initially, there wasn't much of a change, perhaps a slight increase at two weeks. Um, that led to uh, the Memorial Day weekend, which uh, was at, at or about the time of the second phase of the reopening. And now, two weeks later from that, we started to see a definite change uh, characterized by a marked increase in the number of cases that has continued to grow and, in fact, has been accelerating in the last week. Um, it, it is true that at the same time, the number of tests uh, that are, are being performed has increased. And so the question arises of whether this increase could be attributed to just more testing. Um, our statisticians here at the University of Texas School of Public Health have looked at this model and have adjusted it for testing. And that's what you see on the slide below. The red line shows a definite increase in the number of tests since March. I think everybody is aware of that. You know, more and more testing sites are available around the state. But you'll notice that the blue line, which are the new cases, don't parallel that increase in the test, but actually they are rising at a much faster rate than just a simple increase in the number of tests would account for. So whereas it is true that new testing or more testing might account for some of the increase, it is definitely not accounting for all of the increase. Next slide, please. We also look at other indicators. Uh, one of them that you may have heard because it's one of the ones that the governor's office monitor, uh, monitors is called the percent positivity rate. That means out of all of the tests that are done, how many of them are positive? What is the percent? And the desirable range is generally around five to 6% or less. That's uh, 
really less than 5%. That's what we mark with the green bars here. Um, as it increases, the, uh, the number of uh, positive tests, um, our level of concern increases because that means that there are more and more cases that aren't reflected simply, by, again, by an increase in the number of tests. And you'll see that currently, since about May 24th, or actually really since about May 31st, Memorial Day, uh, well, the Memorial Day period, May 25th was Memorial Day, we've set, seen a steady increase in the percent positive tests, so that we are now nearing 9 to 10%. Um, we're not in the red zone yet or the orange zone, but it's going up, and that needs to turn around and go down if we expect to have an impact on uh, putting the brakes on this disease. Next slide. Other indicators that we look at, you've probably heard on TV as well, that uh, hospital capacity is beginning to um, uh, be strained a little bit. Uh, overall, across the state, we're in pretty good shape. There are some hotspot areas, Houston being one of them. So what we see on this graph is in the uh, orange line up at the top, you'll see that there's this, these are available Texas hospital beds. This is all types of hospitals, uh, excuse me, all types of hospital beds, all types of wards, et cetera. And you see that they are steadily declining. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all due to COVID because many of these are also due to patients with other diseases that are being hospitalized that for a while were not being hospitalized because hospitals stopped admitting them in order to prepare for a surge in COVID cases. But then as the hospitals began, as, as the rest of the state began to reopen, the hospitals did too. And so they are now taking, for example, elective surgeries that were put on hold. And so that fills up beds too. The green line shows the number of ventilators available, and it's been pretty steady. Uh, we have enough ventilators in the state. The blue line shows uh, a different trend. Uh, now it's a specific type of hospital bed. It's the ICU beds, which, as you know, can be used for treating the most severe uh, COVID patients, especially those that are at the greatest risk of, of dying. And you see that as the um, number of hospitalized patients in red has gone up, the number of ICU beds is going down. Now that's across the state. Next slide. Uh, but we need to remember that these are just state numbers, they're average numbers. But if we look at, and this is from the Johns Hopkins website, we look at the map of Texas here, what we're seeing in different shades of colors is what we call incidence rates. So this is the number of new cases uh, in particular counties or areas within the state. And, and you see basically without going into the details that there are a lot of different colors in Texas. And so the darker colors in, in um, you know, the San Antonio area, for example, the Houston area, Amarillo up here, uh, are where there are, these are hotspots for cases right now. And the lighter colors like the Big Bend area uh, or close to there, um, are lower cases. So the variability matters to you as individual employers, because even though you need to stay abreast of what's going on in the state, you need to stay especially abreast of what's going on in your locality so that you can tweak your business and the response that your business has to changing trends, trends much more locally. Next slide. And so as an example of that, here are the data for Houston. And you'll see that in Houston, initially, the uh, effect of the shelter in place was very good. Not only did at two weeks after the shelter in place started, did we start to see a leveling off of cases, we in fact started to see a decline. And so when Houston began reopening in phase one uh, on May, uh, May 1, it was in pretty good shape. And as a matter of fact, for the first two weeks after phase one, it did pretty well. There was barely a change, but as phases two and three uh, set in, and especially after the Memorial Day weekend, 
we're starting to see the exact same acceleration in number of cases that we are seeing statewide. And again, looking at the uh, uh, graph below, this is not explained only by increased testing. The red line is, it's not flat, it's growing a little bit, but the big, uh, the difference in the, the slope of the blue curve, which are new cases compared to the slope of the red curve is very different. So it tells you that new testing is not explaining uh, in its entirety the, 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 rise, the alarming rise in cases. Next slide. Now in the medical center here in Houston, because of this, we monitor a series of, of indicators, what we call our early warning signs with respect to the capacity that the Texas Medical Center has to uh, be able to absorb a surge in COVID cases. And, and without, I'm not gonna go into the details. There are about uh, five different uh, indicators that we follow. And over here on the right, where it says current status, we label each of those indicators in red, green, or yellow. Green is good, and so you see down below that we have now what used to be a problem, which is not enough personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. We are doing just fine in that area. But the, um, the caseload uh, that is impacting the ICU occupancy beds, that is in red already. So even though we still have ICU beds, if we continue at the current trajectory, it could mean that at least in the Houston, the Texas Medical Center area, that our capacity uh, in the ICUs will be lost in about, to absorb these cases will be lost in about two weeks. And then we have some yellow markers. Generally, uh, the, the first category has to do with the overall growth in number of cases of COVID, which I've already shown you. And you see that we have a sustained increase over the last many days. Um, and that's why it's in yellow. And the other yellow is the, uh, the, the percent of base ICU capacity that we have, which is at about 83%. So we've only got about 17% to go uh, before we get into trouble. And hopefully the trend will change uh, before that happens, uh, if everybody does what they're supposed to do. Next slide. Now, one of the ways that uh, the community can help employers and their own families, uh, if you want, uh, testing uh, you know, tells you if you've got the virus and we know about testing and where to get it, or you should know, but there are other ways to also keep tabs on, on what's going on. And one of them is to simply track symptoms. The Harvard University has um, prepared, uh, has developed this free uh, app uh, that is secure where any citizen can track their daily symptoms or absence of symptoms, we hope, on a daily basis. It says it takes one to three minutes to complete, but in my experience, it takes less than 30 seconds. Um, and uh, it's already got, undergone uh, ethical review and our University of Texas here in Houston Health, UT Health here in Houston is participating in this study. And we would like to encourage citizens to download the app and track themselves, why? Uh, and, and here, we're gonna make these slides available to you, to everyone after the, uh, the webinar. And so you can get more information by going to these um, websites, but if you'll give me the next slide, Tommy, please. Um, uh, here are some of the advantages. No, nope, previous one. Here are some of the advantages of using this app. You can use it for your own family to record symptoms for all family members, even those family members that don't live with you, but that might be coming to this weekend's barbecue at your house, <laughs> okay? Um, and allows that you to follow whether they are well or not. And for businesses, um, our, our um, epidemiology and biostatistics department is constantly analyzing these data in the aggregate, no identifiers, we don't know who it is, but we know what their zip codes or their counties are. And that's information that could be helpful to local employers 
uh, if they want to know, well, you know, in my zip code where I have my gym or my hair salon or whatever, you know, what's the situation like? Or, or the zip codes where most of my clients come from. So I, we just put that out there uh, just to make you aware of it. If you uh, want more information, you can contact our colleagues, Dr. Srila Sharma or Bajal Bala. These are their emails and they'll ha be happy to uh, answer any of your questions. Thank you. Thanks, George. Dr. Rios. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is Janelle Rios, and I'm a faculty associate at the School of Public Health, and I'm in Houston. Um, so what I'm going to share with you today, very briefly, is a well-known and often used public health tool, and it serves as a foundation for controlling hazards in the workplace. The tool is called the hierarchy of controls, and hierarchy refers to the level <clears throat> of effectiveness of each of these controls. And it's usually displayed as an inverted pyramid. Um, and we'll go through each layer of this pyramid um, in a step-by-step -step fashion, and I'll do it in two minutes. Um, so at the very top of the pyramid here, we have elimination. That is the most effective way of protecting yourself from COVID-19. and any hazard you find in the workplace is to eliminate it. And how do you do that? You practice primary prevention techniques. Um, and those are the things that would keep the virus from entering your home or workplace. Um, so as soon as you walk in the door, you wash your hands. You are very careful with um, masking and social distancing. Uh, next slide, please. The, the next uh, layer is engineering controls. Um, and these are things that you don't often see, um, uh, with the exception of the plexiglass. So engineering controls are things that would isolate you from the virus. So say you can't prevent it from coming in, but you can isolate it from you and your workers. Um, things like uh, technologies that you put into your air conditioning system, your HVAC system, uh, to uh, I don't want to say radio, I want to say to kill the virus or minimize its uh, efficiency or uh, efficacy, um, increasing the number of air changing, air exchanges uh, in the household or at the place of work um, is an engineering control and it's very effective. Um, additionally, cleaning and disinfecting is critically important. Um, and with this, as you use disinfectants, please be sure to use the EPA registered disinfectants and you can find them uh, online. EPA has them uh, published. If you Google list N EPA registered disinfectants, even if you Google EPA list N, I think it's gonna take you to it. I've also got a hyperlink in this particular um, presentation. And like uh, George said, you will receive um, a copy of the slide set. Um, next slide, please. Administrative controls um, are a method of organizing work in order to keep workers and the virus um, from getting together. So uh, what do you do here um, under administrative controls? You want to train your employees on how to self-monitor um, and how to screen themselves before they even come into the office. Um, if it's possible, uh, have the worker work from home or from another location so they never even bring the virus into the workplace. Um, and as you're in the uh, your place of business, practice social distancing. 
Um, I recently went to a wedding. My niece got married and I wanted to have my hair done. Um, and it was wonderful the way uh, the salon handled um, everything. We all waited outside until it was our turn to go in. Um, and <clears throat> both I wore and the stylist, she wore a mask. And I felt very comfortable. And she, I, I saw her clean everything as I was coming in. And, uh, and she was cleaning uh, everything that I touched and she was touching um, as I was leaving. So it was, it was a very nice administrative control, which increased my comfort level in getting my, my hair cut and styled for the wedding. Um, next slide, please. So the, the last, the, the true last line of defense uh, is using personal protective equipment. And this is the least effective but the most visible that you see out there. Now this, this is an N95 respirator and it requires a professional to professionally fit this to your face. This is meant to protect you from the world. Um, so, so that's why it is fit tested exactly to your face. Um, and that's a process, that's a bit of a process. Um, next slide, please. And, and finally, and this is a new layer to the pyramid that we've just added, is community protective equipment. And those are things like um, cloth masks that you see uh, people wearing out there um, that are reusable or the um, surgical masks that are disposable. And this is meant to protect the community from you in case you are positive, you don't even know it, and you may be spreading the virus. So if you wear this, the viral particles stay, tend to stay on the inside um, rather than you spreading it out into the world. And it's just a very polite thing to do. It's, it, it's polite. It's good manners to wear one of these when you're out in public, especially if you're in an indoor location. So I think I have used up my two minutes um, and I welcome questions at the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Janelle. And let's move on to Dr. Mena. Hi, thank you. I'm the El Paso campus dean of UT Health Houston School of Public Health. And as Dr. Rios mentioned, there are numerous factors to consider in the workplace to minimize exposure and thereby minimize health risks associated with COVID-19. Um, but although we know that this virus is most easily transmitted via person to person through aerosolized droplets, there are some drivers of infection risks based on what we know about other coronaviruses and how they've been transmitted in the workplace setting. And so one of those is not to forget the environmental sources and such as surfaces and the fomites in your environment. And then understanding how to properly disinfect those, the way Dr. Rios explained with the list in EPA disinfectants and then considering disinfection um, Time, contact time rather and disinfection frequency and also identifying those high touch surfaces in the areas whether it's a gym or a hair salon and then finally I think one aspect that hasn't always been mentioned when we see published safeguards is the role of the customer the patron the client if, if the client isn't aware of those safeguards a very well thought through plan of implementation in a workplace could be disrupted by a customer. And I, I think um, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I think that um, what we can probably all agree upon is that the grocery stores are difficult to control. You know, those didn't close and there's lots of people in the grocery stores. 
when we talk about gyms and personal care services, there is more that um, personal relationship, if you will, between the establishment and the client. And I think communication, from what I've seen, has been uh, very effective regarding getting that out before, uh, like Dr. Rios mentioned before, uh, visiting maybe a hair care establishment. But I look forward to this conversation um, later this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. All right, Bob Emery. Hi, this is Bob I'm in Houston. Uh, I want to cover four points. Uh, and again, uh, as others have mentioned, really look forward to the conversation. So some of these points we've already touched on, but I would like to underscore them. Uh, number one is, unfortunately, in the popular media, there's a lot of discussion about the coronavirus or COVID-19, but they keep forgetting to use the word novel. <laughs> and it's a novel virus. And that's an important point because there's some stuff we know about the virus and there's some stuff we don't know about the virus. And so my a suggestion to folks is as you conduct your business and you work with your employees and clients, make sure the expectation is set that the rules may change. And if you just think back to perhaps January of this year, a lot of things have changed along the way with regard to as information evolves, scientific information evolves about this virus. So just um, the notion of transmissibility without exhibiting symptoms, that was not known early on. And that's why this whole issue of the masking has come up. Um, one thing that I would advise you to track is in epidemiology, there's a, an important concept called R naught. And R naught is the number of uh, secondary cases that one might expect when you have a confirmed case. But uh, so for, let me give you some reference numbers just so you understand. So like in the case of seasonal flu, the R naught might be 1.2. So in other words, for one case of, of a, a, a seasonal influenza, we would expect to see in the community 1.2 additional cases if no controls are in place. And that would be things such as masking, things such as uh, immunizations, that sort of stuff. The current estimated uh, R0 for, uh, for the coronavirus is 2.2. And that number may change. Uh, but again, that has to do with, if we have a confirmed case of coronavirus, we would expect to see 2.2 additional cases if no controls are put in place. And that, that's an important one. On the other end of the spectrum, take something like measles, and Dr. Delcos helped me on this because I always get the number wrong, but I think the R0 for measles is like 15 or something, right? Yes. So, so um, anyhow, my advice is just track the R naught value because that's going to probably change as more scientific information evolves. That's number one. Number two is we had a lot of questions about screening, and I bet we're going to get a bunch of questions today about this. Please understand that screening actually begins at home. I'd like to un underscore what Janelle was saying that. Uh, by educating our employees and and our clients that if you're not feeling well don't come in um, you know make sure you are, are masked uh, basic hygiene practices we have a lot of people that seem to be swayed towards these visible activities of the masking number one and then temperature checks but and we have physicians on here that can answer the questions better than myself but it may be at the point we may be at a point right now where temperature checking is moot that it's really not helping because we have community transmission and it could be that people could be taking medications that mask the elevated temperature anyhow. So maybe relying on temperature screening isn't the way to go. 
Uh, number three here, I believe Janelle has already covered pretty well. There's um, the notion of masking that uh, these face coverings and surgical masks are intended to keep you from inadvertently spreading the virus to someone else unknowingly because it, it is as the science evolves, it appears as though people who are asymptomatic still have the ability to transmit to the disease unknowingly. And therefore that's why there's this emphasis on the face coverings. But that's different than PPE or personal protective equipment as the um, Janelle showed, the N95s, there's other ones called P100s, uh, PAPRs, others. Those devices are intended to um, protect the wearer. And, er, and we have focused on making sure that we have those supplies for our healthcare providers. And so there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, well, should everybody have N95s? Well, well, hold on now, you know, there's a finite number of those things. We gotta take care of these frontline healthcare workers first but the supply chain seems to be firing up and I could envision in the future, and we can have this discussion, that in other professions where people have close contact with their client, like in hair salons or like a dentist or, or whatever, um, that you're gonna see more and more use of things such as N95s rather than the, the, the face coverings when you're in close contact, close proximity uh, to, to your client. Uh, and then my last comment here is uh, cleaning and disinfection. Uh, as, as was mentioned, you want to make sure uh, that if you have if you're doing the cleaning yourself and maybe you're mixing these materials or you have a contract uh, housekeeping service, make darn sure that these EPA that, that the, the disinfectant that they're using is an EPA registered disinfectant and that they're mixing it to the appropriate proportions and, they're uh, adhering to the um, the residence time. In other words, how how long? I, what I see a lot, right, as I just travel around, is we got people that are diligently cleaning. They go in and spray a door handle and then immediately wipe it off. Well, there's a stay time to this stuff as well, a residence time, and so that's really really important. And I think as Janelle was mentioning, where she just went to have her hair done. Um, you know, they, they, if, if there could be a pressure to churn more customers through, we have to educate those customers about the notion of the stay time for the disinfectant to actually uh, uh, take hold. So, um, uh, and then uh, with regard to environmental persistence, we get a lot of questions about how long might the virus be viable on a surface. Um, it, uh, it varies by the substrate or whatever the material it may be on, but a good rule of thumb is 72 hours. Um, uh, that's kind of an average of the different ones. There's been issues about cardboard and, and other sorts of things. And then last but not least, uh, I don't have it on the slide, but um, the notion of air exchanges within your facility and then the different controls that you might put in place. And then we have a lot of questions about UV disinfection. You can, you can actually buy these devices and it's UV lights that fit in the ductwork. And that's, that's true and they can be effective, but I just forewarn people, you get a system like that, it's like getting a puppy. You got to walk it, you got to worm it, you got to feed it, you got to maintain it. And so if you are attempting to rely on something like an inline UV disinfection system for your ventilation system, make sure you understand the commitment to maintaining it. So I'll, I'll stop there and uh, look forward to the conversations with Bill on. Thanks, Bob. Let's move on to our next slide here. So that's, I expect a full book report. There, there read all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
<laughs> Dr. Dufresne. All right, so I'm David Dufresne. I am here in San Antonio at our San Antonio campus, and my responsibility and assignment was to provide you with some uh, resources. Uh, Bruce, I see you asked a question on here that you're an owner uh, of a gym, and you're asking about where you can find information. And so I would encourage you to, to look at some of these resources um, on this particular slide. I've included the CDC, some information from uh, that they have put out for business owners and employers. Uh, put a couple of links there from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is the federal regulatory body as it relates to making sure that workplaces are safe uh, for the workers. And I'm going to talk specifically about that second OSHA link on the next slide. I've included what our state government has put out as well as what the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce has put out. And then lastly, the very last one there, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. I would encourage you to go and look there. They have put out some great resources for a multitude of industrial sectors, including hair salons, nail salons, and workout facilities. Next slide, Tommy. Um, we've received, I have received several questions inquiries on how OSHA is uh, enforcing cases in the workplace. And I just wanted to bring your attention uh, to this on how you should treat OSHA, what they call an OSHA reportable and an OSHA reportable. There are two different uh, situations here. A recordable is what you, what injury and illness you put on OSHA 300 forms. And according to the OSHA definition, there are three criteria uh, for COVID. One is it has to be confirmed uh, with a test, it has to be work-related, and, and it gets medical treatment beyond the typical first aid. It also results in the worker being off work or loss of consciousness or unfortunately death. And so you do have to record if it is a work-related COVID case. But the question is that I'm hearing from multiple employers, how do we determine if this is actually work-related? That's the question, and it is a challenging undertaking. And so OSHA has provided a little bit of uh, clarity on that very question. Uh, for one, they want to look and see if you conducted a, uh, an investigation, how thorough your investigation was. Was there evidence even available uh, to you as an employer? But then also they're going to look at such factors. Um, was the worker working among other workers that, uh, that you did have some other cases in the workplace? That could be used as evidence as being work-related. Um, or if the worker was involved with interacting with the uh, community while on the job and there was an outbreak or an increased number of cases, that might be evidence that OSHA could use. So it's very specific to the workplace um, and they would take a, a number of pieces of information and evidence and trying to decide if this truly is work-related. If it's a reportable, um, that is when you have to actually call OSHA up and say, we have a COVID case. And that COVID case, if it is work-related, has to result in a fatality, they died if they were in the hospital. Um, you have to report that to OSHA within eight hours, 
or if they were hospitalized, uh, notify OSHA uh, within 24 hours. But that's only if it is work-related. And you have that decision as a business owner or an employer as to if it is work-related. And so um, there are a lot of questions out there. And if there are questions, you can contact your local OSHA authorities or offices, and they can help you determine if it is work-related. So I'll put that out there. The second OSHA link that I put on the preceding slide addresses this information. In fact, I copied and pasted directly from the OSHA documentation. So I'll, I'll shut up and we'll move on to the open discussion. Thanks, Dave. Absolutely. Thanks for everybody's uh, insightful information. Uh, what I'll do is I'll ask Coach Vic to jump back on his, uh, his webcam so we can see his uh, lovely face. Um, so we are, let me just go ahead and jump into uh, some of the questions that have been submitted. And the first one is specific to a gym. This uh, attendee says, I'm, I'm a part owner of a gym. Can you provide any information on opening up the gym and the mask requirements? So I would imagine that some of that is probably from Dave's uh, slide here. That's, that probably gives some of that uh, guidance information. But maybe if, if Coach Vic, you want to kind of give some your own personal feedback on what you guys have been doing to to open up and, and those mask requirements. I think you're on mute, Vic. <laughs> Happens to all of us. Can't hear you yet. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can. There we go. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. There we are. Technology. You know, what can I do? Um, let me see. Where was I going? So if we haven't opened yet, one of the things that we jumped on right out the gate is when we did have an opening date, we started training immediately. We brought back our staff and started going through um, all the scenarios, right? All the problems on how to respond to our members coming back through the door and then how are we going to do it so that we continue to keep our doors open. So we went through role playing top to bottom and we have we have the privilege with Orange Theory that we have a medical advisory board in corporate that helps line us up with everything that we needed to open uh, in regards to our cleaning equipment and processes. But for the staff specifically, when we got an opening date, we had everybody in wearing masks, full PPE prior to. Uh, so if you were coming through the doors, you were wearing a mask as staff already out the gate, just get used to it. Um, and gloves, I know there can be a discussion about gloves, but that was the recommendation for us. Um, and um, we got those rolling right out the gate. When it came to members, we followed the CDC recommendations in local government where we said that it was recommended, but we couldn't mandate it at the time. And that still seems to be the recommendation now. Uh, we have recently come to mandatory at the door entering entering and leaving the studio um, and all of that communication just came within our classes we still have long breaks in between and making sure that we're contacting those members both uh, on email and as announcements social media has been has been a big help for us as well Let me answer some of those questions I'll keep going I'm a bit of a talker so. uh, well you know and I would just add you know since Texas not as of, as of today, it's not a statewide requirement to have to wear masks. So I, I would assume that every local, you know, township would need to, that person would need to look at their, what their local ordinance is in Houston now in Harris County, it is, it is a requirement for businesses to require masks of their patrons, but that's not 
the case in, in all counties and all cities. So definitely look at your own specific area to know what that law is for, for your area. Um, let's see, where did my questions jump off to? I know that our esteemed colleague, Dr. Whitehead, had, had written in and, and asked uh, maybe if, if, if George is familiar with that voluntary symptom study on the estimate of how many people in Harris County have symptoms that fit into a COVID uh, type uh, illness. Um, I think Dr. Whitehead said it was, it looked like it was pretty low, uh, meaning that, you know, not, not, all not all symptoms that people have are gonna fit nicely into a, into a COVID-like uh, illness, which is kind of, you know, which is kind of what throws us for a loop. You know, some people can just present with a sore throat or a headache or you know something vague and and not necessarily that classic i've got a fever i've got a dry cough so maybe george you want to talk in general about some symptoms that we know yeah, about sure so um i i don't know any results from the symptom tracker locally but uh, you're right so um we have looked at some data here from the medical center and um it's interesting. It's a very good example of what Bob was saying, that this is a novel virus and we are learning all, all the time. You may remember that at the very beginning, back in January, February, when the CDC was giving a, a list of symptoms on which they were giving us symptoms to healthcare providers to know when to test. Initially, they, re they all required, first of all, having a fever. And then maybe having some other symptoms like cough or shortness of breath, but you had to have a fever. We now know that in the majority of cases, there is no fever. It, 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 it's, it's a common symptom, but uh, it's not 90%. It's closer to like 40 or 50%. So what does that mean? It means that early on when we required a fever, we probably missed a whole bunch of cases. Um, when we look at our data uh, from some of the hospitals here, the most common symptom is still a cough. And it is, and that's at upwards around 80%. Then it's followed by fever at a, at a, at a good distance, loss of sense of smell, uh, shortness of breath. Um, and then you start getting into the vague stuff, right? So the headaches, the, 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 the muscle aches. Um, and, and Tommy is right. Many of these symptoms are nonspecific and they're common to other things. So, for example, if somebody comes to me and they don't, they haven't been around anybody with COVID, and they tell me that they have diarrhea and a little bit of a muscle aches, I probably won't test them for COVID. But if that same patient tells me, oh, and by the way, I just found out I was exposed to somebody who is positive and I was at a close distance and I wasn't wearing a mask, et cetera, then I'm gonna be more likely to test. And so that reflects a, a measure in epidemiology we call the predictive value. That means when I take a symptom that may be vague in this case, but it happens to be in the setting of a real exposure in this case, the likelihood that that vague, otherwise vague symptom is due to COVID goes way up, okay? what's called an increase in the positive predictive value. So we have to take on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. But the, at the same time, CDC has been lengthening the list of symptoms on that they have uh, attributed to COVID, all right? So it's a roundabout answer, but the most common things are still cough, fever, 
loss of sense of smell, shortness of breath, and then some other things like headaches, nasal congestion, sore throat, etc. Thanks, George. Chanel, did you have any comments? I did. I did. So I just got on the, the symptom tracker and I see that 1.6% of Harris County's residents, according to the tracker, exhibit um, COVID-related symptoms as of June 24th um, at this time. Um, but it also says that those symptoms change um, as they gather more in information on this particular app and other models that they're using, um, those symptoms actually do change, just as George was talking about. Excellent, excellent. Um, let, me, let me ask a question to, to Janeth and Enrique. Um, first of all, are you guys open for business again? And secondly, maybe talk a little bit about what you guys in the, in the salon industry have been doing uh, to ensure that your patrons are, are safe. Uh, yes, we reopened May 11th, and uh, before that, we started preparing to reopen the hair salon by labeling just all over the salon, you know, things as simple as if you want to uh, look at a hair product, please contact the hairstylist instead of just grabbing stuff. We put a hand sanitizer outside the door at the reception on every station. And we wear masks, uh, face masks, and we wear a shield. And we try not to talk when we're shampooing the clients since we're directly above them. And then most of the work that we do, we're standing behind them, but we're wearing our protective gear at all times. Uh, at the hair salons, typically uh, something that we like to do for clients is allow them to change so that they don't ruin their clothes. So we let them know ahead of time either through a text message or phone call or social media, that we were not going to be allowing any changing. We asked them to wear uh, maybe not their best clothes so that they could put the smock over without actually changing. Uh, and uh, we were locking the door initially to make sure that we didn't have any uh, unnecessary guests. We asked our clients not to bring additional friends or family with them and to wait outside. And that way it would give us a time to clean our stations. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the EPA. We use barbicide and it requires a 10 minute contact. So even when we were running on time, we gave ourselves that kind of space so that we could spray down our chairs, our shampoo bowls, 10 minutes for them to actually be uh, uh, sanitized then we'd uh, send that client a text message and say, it's not safe for you to come up. Hey, this is Bob. I'm, I'm curious, did you, um, are you taking taking some of the chairs out of service? I don't know if that's the term you referred to it as, but yeah. I think up going. We're doing that as well. Uh, we're a total of six stylists. Uh, uh -huh. There's seven chairs and we removed four, three, okay. three chairs. So there's space in between. Uh, we also have three shampoo bowls, and we're currently not using the one in the middle. That way, there's like a six feet distance from uh, client and stylist shampooing. And then, and then I'm, not, I'm Tommy. I'm not sure I'm allowed to ask questions. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. Go ahead. Have you, have you extended your hours? Because if you if you've taken some of the chairs out of service, but, but to be financially viable, 
you still want to have the throughput, I would think, of the people to get their stuff, including Christy, right? Christy's got to get her yeah. hair done. <laughs> so yes. so you extend, you've extended. Yeah, so what we've done is uh, we developed a schedule so that we could all be here even amount of days mm -hmm. so that we could rotate Saturdays because uh, our clients at work, they still prefer Saturdays. Mm -hmm. So we don't have more than four stylists at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, we've definitely started coming in at 8 instead of 10, mm -hmm. work later. Sundays. Sundays and Mondays, which were usually days that were not available. Those help everybody because we don't allow any double booking anymore mm -hmm. for the time being. It used to be an easier way to get more people in and make more money, but currently we work one client at a time and uh, we make sure that we don't have unnecessary guests in here, you know, just contributing to overpopulation of the salon. And then Coach Vic, I'm, I'm I don't know if your, your operation is a 24 hour deal or or did you guys expand hours to kind of be able to space people out so uh we are boutique fitness so everything is reservation based we have an app on your phone and or contact in the studio so everything is basically on appointment what we were able to do um which was a little bit different on the model so i'm glad that you brought it brought it up doc but we were based off of occupancy prior to and so you mentioned it was traffic trying to get as many people through the door we're very big on community, talking, gathering in the lobby, that type of deal. And the world we're in now, we had to pull all that out. So we've taken all the chairs out of our lobby. We still ask people to stay out front. We came back when we opened the doors with, on average, about 10 more classes a week in every studio than when we closed. With the decrease in capacity, we had to increase opportunities. And we noticed as well that, you know, maybe not everybody's back to regular world work again. So some of those downtimes in the middle of the day that wouldn't engage members are now doing it 145, two o'clock in the afternoon. We run seven days a week. Our weekends are a little bit longer on average by one class more to help uh, satisfy our our member bases. So we've done all of that too. Doors are locked at the front and all of our staff is 100% required PPE since the day we opened the doors. So. We do temp checks at the beginning. I know that those are on there as well as a questionnaire for all coaches and sales associates and members. So before they come through the door, we ask them and we have to hear verbal confirmation that they're not having any issue. Uh, and we also ask all of our members to stay out the doors until right between five and 10 minutes before class starts. And then we can only allow one person in at a time to get to their station. Everything is reservation based. And we have every other station in use uh, we brought the tape measure in for that one, too, and we made sure that we have six foot on either side. So if you're in a hula hoop and spinning, you don't hit anybody. So we have all of that spaced out within our studios as well. Interesting. Excellent. Excellent. George, before I know you've got to jump off in a few minutes, there was a question that was written in uh, about testing and the accuracy of testing uh, PCR versus some of the new rapid uh, test kits, maybe the, the antigen kit. So I know you and I just watched a short video on some of that. But do you want to kind of comment on on the types of testing we have available and, and what their accuracies are? Right. So the um, the most accurate for detecting an active infection, that means being sick right now, is what's called the PCR. Um, it's the one that you see on TV where they're sticking a swab all the way back to the back of your nose. So some people describe it as 
feeling that they're shoving it up, up into their brain. It's not <laughs> comfortable, but it is very accurate. Uh, but that tells you about current infection. And then, uh, and that one typically takes a few hours at the least to get a result. And depending on how backlogged the lab is, uh, some of the commercial labs are taking uh, four or five days to get a, a result back, but it is the most reliable. There are some rapid assays, uh, probably the most commonly uh, heard uh, and used is the Abbott 15-minute test. This is the one that you've heard on the news as, um, you know, it was touted as a wonderful uh, addition uh, early on because you could get results in 15 minutes and then as more and more testing evidence accumulated, uh, it appeared to have some issues where it was it was not as accurate as one would hope, um, especially with respect to giving you what, the, the one we worry about the most is false negatives. That means you do the test and it comes up negative, but you actually have the infection. There can be reasons that go beyond the simple accuracy of the test itself. Maybe the sample wasn't obtained correctly. Maybe it was obtained too soon because after you're exposed to somebody with COVID, it takes a few days for these tests to become positive. So if you test a person the same afternoon that they were exposed, it's going to be negative and you may still, you may already be developing the disease. So we typically wait about a minimum of five days after the exposure, uh, as long as people don't have symptoms, to, to do that test. But then there were problems with the accuracy of the tests themselves that were reported. And so many places have pulled that back. Um, in our hospital, uh, the hospital, one of the hospitals that we work with, Memorial Hermann, uh, it's actually performed very well. Uh, and the way we know that is we've done the test and then we've done the PCR, the gold standard back to back, and usually they've agreed pretty well, but that hasn't been the same experience elsewhere. And then there are um, antigen tests, which um, Dr. Heisler is familiar with, which you take a nasal swab and you're looking for uh, part of, uh, parts of the virus, but it's not as sensitive as the PCR. So the concern there is, again, there might they might uh, not catch all of the cases. And then finally, we've heard a lot about antibody tests. Antibody tests, the useful ones, don't really tell you if you're having an infection right now. The one that was supposed to isn't working out so well. And so you may have heard of something called an IgM, an immunoglobulin M study. And that, most places are abandoning uh, its use for COVID-19 because it's not reliable. Instead, what is uh, more promising is the IgG, the immunoglobulin G, because that detects people who have had a past infection, even though they might not have known they had the infection. And uh, so it's important for us to know, you know, what percent of the population has that IgG, that evidence of a past infection, because that's very useful information for knowing how we are doing in terms of making progress towards protecting the entire community. But it needs to be used appropriately. And so um, right now, all we know is that people who have had that infection have an IgG level that is elevated, uh, it's positive. We don't know if that necessarily means that they are immune or protected from another infection. And if they are protected from another infection, we don't know how long that immunity lasts. At this point, <laughs> we will know, but it needs a lot more months of data to, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, compile. And, and George, make just for the audience uh, that the IgG test is a blood test, not a nasal swab. That's correct. Sorry, yeah. it, it yeah. is a blood test. Yes, it's just a finger, so, but it's just a finger prick, I believe. Correct? 
or no? Is it, it, a, is it? It can be a finger prick, and there uh, you can take actual blood from a vein. We the one we do is actual blood from a vein. You know, okay. we're biased. More is better. More blood is. Better. <laughs> to follow up on that, a question was written in about what what are we doing at the Houston Safety Council as far as testing? Are we are we testing, you know, re, return to work people trying to get people back to work and making sure they are not infected? Or are we testing people with symptoms? And uh, the answer is we're testing people to get them back to work, to make sure that they are uh, not infected, but we're trying our best not to see sick individuals at our clinic. Those, those sick individuals need to go see their own doctor or a county health clinic uh, and get tested. We're doing our best to, to just see, uh, you know, assumably well people uh, to make sure that they are okay to, to get back to work as much as we can. So thank you for that question as well. All right, let me jump back up here on my screen here. Question, and, and Bob, you're up on the screen already. So, you know, when we talk about specifically N95 masks, and when when people in the public have those N95 masks, yes. the first part of the question was, how many times can we use it before we need to toss it in the trash? And the other, more of a comment was, the public needs to understand that that is a respirator that it, it needs to be worn in a proper way with proper technique a proper tightening to assure a safe seal so maybe you can talk about how how long you can wear that mask before it needs to be tossed and then and then how to how to make sure you're wearing it properly sure well uh, in in a perfect world so let's go before uh, covid <laughs> in a perfect world the idea was that these n95 masks would be um worn by the healthcare provider and then after they treated the patient they would then be disposed of but now the notion of extended wear became important because there was a shortage of the supply chain for n95s and then there was this issue of the um and i believe it was dr fauci brought this up during testimony just the other day about the um one of the reasons that early on in this this whole event uh, it was unclear that uh, transmission was occurring when people were asymptomatic and just by having conversations. But the, the concern was uh, if, if you have public masking, there could be a long, a big rush to buy a PPE by the public. And we really need to reserve that for the frontline healthcare providers. The supply chain is now beginning to fill in, and, and I think you're going to find these more available um, for others uh, that can, can get them. But uh, you're right, they need to be fit tested. So uh, the folks that we have here at the Health Science Center, they put the device on. We actually have a measurement device after it's strapped in. It can actually measure the concentration inside the mask as compared to the concentration of stuff outside the mask. And you can see that if you're getting a, a good fit for that, um, then we normally advise folks to, um, if, if it becomes soiled or damp, we're getting to the hot time of the year where these things, when they get saturated like that, that starts to uh, impact its ability to work well. So you, that's a bit of a judgment call. But I will tell you, interestingly, early on in this, there was such a shortage of PP, of, of particularly N95s, that we actually got in the business of reprocessing them. And so at our uh, sister uh, hospitals, the, the masks were used, and then if they were not visibly soiled or damaged, we actually uh, exposed them to uh, vapor phase hydrogen peroxide, which by the way, OSHA and NIOSH did allow, um, just so that we would have a, a suitable um, supply of N95s uh, for these devices. Um, but, but in an industrial setting, 
you know, the typical thing it would be that the, you, you have to have, a, as you well know, you have to have a health history questionnaire for the individual who's wearing, if they're having to wear it for work, you know, they're supposed to do the medical clearance piece and then the fit testing piece there as well. I think, uh, Tommy, I think you got- I was muted. I was muted. <laughs> Thanks, good catch. So I, I think you, you hit on it, but you know, the, the, the CDC came out and said, let's forego fit testing on the N95s because when you fit test an N95 rest mask, you gotta poke a hole in it, you destroy it for that test. So they said, you know what, just, just wear them. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's several YouTube videos out there that you can watch and, and, and teach yourself how to properly put on that N95 respirator and make sure it's got a good seal. Uh, just, you know, if you're gonna wear, if you're gonna go to the, the length of wearing an N95 mask, you wanna make sure you're wearing it right and that it's doing its job. So thanks for, for Dr. Whitehead for, for jumping in there on that uh, question as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about air circulation, air filtration. I would I would imagine that, especially in a gym, when your 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 customers are huffing and puffing and sweating and and uh, slinging sweat everywhere and, and and blowing out hot air as they're exercising, the uh, the use of filtration and circulation in the in the HVAC system is probably even of more importance. So. Um, uh, Coach Vic, you want to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing with not using fans or using fans or the circulation? What what are you guys doing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, upon day one opening, we, it was clear across the across the market that we would not use fans. Uh, that would be overhead fans for sure. And then also, if you've been on a treadmill before, if you haven't, let me know. I'll hook you up with a free class, right? But over on our treadmills, we have a fan as well. We went through with maintenance prior to, and we disabled all fans. So we have no fans on the treadmills and we do not use any overhead fans either. We keep all doors open. So the HVAC is just running and that's our only means of circulation. Um, and all doors remain open within the studio. Outside doors, of course, are locked. Uh, this way we don't have anybody touching doors or door handles along the way. So we minimize that as well. Um, right. But that is our, that's our stance on the, on the fans. So Bob, you want to chat a little bit about why, you know, air circulation is, is so important with this virus? I, I, I will, but I'm just kind of curious of Janice and Enrique, uh, how about you guys? Because you think you've got you probably a blow drying, you've got other activities that could aerosolize stuff. So what, are you doing anything different there? Or are, I assume you're in leased space, your, your salons are in a leased space. So that's the HVA system, the HVAC system is run by a commercial firm. Is that correct? Or? Uh, no, actually, the H, uh, HVAC is, is run by us. We have two units. Okay. And we're running them at all times. And we do have to open the door to yeah. allow for circulation. Uh -huh. So we'll do that for maybe about 10 minutes and then we uh, close it again. Okay. Okay. The, the reason I ask this is that um, we just completed a study looking at um, our uh, outpatient clinics and looking at the potential for. Um, could we have some sort of disease transmission with it, as it might relate to uh, air exchanges? And um, it warms my heart to hear Coach Victor say, first of all, don't use the fans because all you're doing is just stirring stuff up. <laughs> but, but the notion of having outside air come in uh, rather than just merely recirculating the air in the room is an important feature. And I can tell you that at least in the clinics where we do um, aerosol-inducing procedures, so let's say bronchoscopy or something like that, 
that the recommendation is four to six air changes per hour. And that's the reason I was asking the question about the lease space is that it, that might be, you know, my, my advice would be make sure you're getting outside air coming in there. And number two is see if you can, if, if, if you can measure it yourself or if you're in like a, a coach Vic, are you in lease space or you, so you have a, like a group that manages it uh, for the, for them to, to report what are, what are the air changes per hour? Um, because I, I agree with Tommy, I would imagine that in a, in a, um, particularly a gym that you'd want to be shooting for something along the line of four to six air changes per hour, uh, in a facility where you got a bunch of people huffing and puffing. But the, the other side of the coin is you don't have the patient load or you don't have as many people in there at the same time. So just, just a rule of thumb there, uh, just something to think about. Um, but that, that notion of having outside air instead of just recirculating is 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 important definitely um let's chat a little bit about i think we've touched on it uh, along the way but i'll start off with 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 janeth and, and enrique talk to us about what you guys are doing to sanitize the area for your customers how often are you doing that are you doing that in between every person along the way in between every every person or while you're you're handling a customer what what are what are you doing to to ensure that your work environment is safe for that customer. So <clears throat> pre-COVID, hair salons were supposed to be doing a lot of uh, sanitizing between clients anyways. And so we do spray down the shampoo bowl and the uh, working station between clients. We do have one uh, extra hairstylist who uh, walks is around. walks around and is keeping the salon clean at all times. If we were to drop a, a utensil, for example, uh, she picks it up and takes it to clean. So first we wash it with water and soap. Then once it's been uh, disinfected, then we put it inside a barbicide so that we don't contaminate the barbicide. And this is something that we change out daily. Uh, another thing that we changed as far as the way we take care of our clients is the capes that are uh, typically, you know, cloth to cut hair. Uh, we wash them in between clients and we also use uh, trash bags. And the trash bags can get a little warm, but we, you know, we cut them. They're very lightweight. We cut them so that we can use them as a cape. And at least the client sees us uh, make a new one and throw it away. And I always joke with them, you can take it home if you like, it's yours now. But that's just, you know, things that we do for, for our clients. We like to do it in front of them. Uh, yeah. We like to offer them a hand sanitizer. So before we start, you know, we also allow them to, to use it. And unfortunately, one of the things that we can't do anymore is we don't offer any coffee or tea, which we normally Never. did, just because, you know, we're, we're so that they know that they're not that we're not you know maybe giving them a, a dirty cup that's 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 great feedback and you know i think you you did touch on it you know doing as much as you can in front of that customer while they're watching is is key right even when i walk up to a grocery store and i got to go get a basket 
makes me feel a lot better when I see that worker wipe down the handlebar of that basket before they give me the basket. So uh, I, I think that's that's good just for everybody's own psyche, right? That, hey, this I know I'm going to sit in this chair and I just watched them wipe it down. So I know they've done everything they can to protect me. That's not always feasible. Another thing I'd like to add is uh, I mentioned if we were to drop a cone. But we do have a box where we sanitize our implements. And uh, even if we didn't drop it, just between clients, every time that we switch out a client, all of the clips and combs that we use goes to, to, to sanitize. The, the only thing now is that we have it out in the open. So mm -hmm. when we're shampooing a client, they actually see where we keep, you know, the, the, the clean combs as opposed to the ones that we've just used. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll ask the same question to, to Coach Vic because obviously, you know, like we like we said, um, a, a gym can get dirty, right? I mean, we're we're gonna sweat, we're gonna we're gonna touch everything in our in our way to dumbbells and, and a treadmill. I mean, we touch things, right? So, what are you guys doing that that's you know helping to ensure that safety? Um, yeah. So we we changed up everything from entrance to exit in the studio when it came through. And to, to jump on the point as well, doing everything in front of our members and shifting um, our importance in the beginning, pre-COVID, it was high fives and hugs and laughing and joking. And we've shifted that over to let me show you how I'm taking care of you by keeping you safe. So by creating that value, uh, the first week or two was not super seamless, but we've we've gotten very good at it. So at the front door, everyone waits outside. Upon entry, the only thing a member can bring into the studio would be anything that fits in a small plastic bag. So we have a small plastic bag, like a grocery bag, and they'll put their keys and phone in there. We're uh, not allowing bags outside clothes, any of that inside the studio. We ask them questions if they're feeling, aside from working out, uh, fatigue or muscle soreness. We check their temperature at the door, and then we allow them in from there. Upon entry, we spray. We have different consistencies of alcohol, right? So we'll spray their hand with a little spray bottle. So they can clean their hands, they have a designated locker, and then they go directly to their location, uh, whatever their start location is. So we control traffic and maintain our distancing within the studio all the way through their station. Each station is separated with uh, at least six feet. We have at least six feet. So we use, in our case, we have a line of treadmills. We'll use every other treadmill. And that gives you about seven feet from center line to seven center line. So we have plenty of opportunity uh, to keep separation. We typically will work off of odds and even numbers. Uh, so what I mean by that is if you're on an odd number treadmill, you're likely on the other person is on an even number rower. So the opportunity to kind of cross ways is minimized. And then of course, when we transition throughout, everything is very process based. It's very militarized, so to speak. Um, no one can move until the coach allows the movement. We have wipes in between every rotation. We'll hand out a brand new wipe to everyone. We have alcohol stations, hand sand, whether different consistencies uh, up to the members use, you know, their discretion on which ones they'd like to use. And we wipe down everything in between. We allow 30 minutes in between all of our classes, minimum of 30 minutes where the staff goes all hands on deck. We lock the front door and we wipe all the equipment. It's all pre-mixed. It comes to us. We use Cintas um, and we have some other uh, cleaning supplies that are here with us. We put on the mask, the gloves, and if it's all touchable equipment, we're wiping it in between every class. It's a bit, you know, it is, it is a process to go through, 
Um, but the idea is to believe, and this is something that you know I share with my leadership, just believe that one person that came through the door has COVID. If you believe that every single class, you have to clean everything. Of course, that's not the case, but you want to have that, that idea so that everything is as clean as possible. And then upon exit, it's still structured on the way out and we still spray their hands um, on the way through as well. So you're clean when you're coming. So Co Coach Vic, this is Bob. Um, I'm just curious because you're part of a, a, a much larger organizational chain has there been any discussion about using these vapor phase hydrogen peroxide misters? Are some of your colleagues doing that? Or uh, it's likely coming. But we haven't actively started using it. It is in discussion. I do believe it's in our near future to be using as well. And then part of that, oh, are we skipping? Hope y'all can hear me. Part of that, that, uh, <laughs> part of that that's is uh, we have cleaners we have professional cleaners that will come by most studios three to four days a week in the evening when business hours are closed and they'll do a full clean as well if and we have a backup plan there was an instance where if we had someone who tested positive for covid that came through they'd be able to miss and, and deep clean our entire studio as well so we have that as a backup plan we are moving that, that, that would be performed by a commercial or a contract firm yeah okay. correct yeah, we would do all the, I guess you would call it housekeeping, uh, but we do have professionals that will come through our studios uh, at least three nights a week on rotation. And then we have the opportunity, if we ran into an issue where there was a member and or employee who came through, did test positive for COVID, we have a company that would come through and, and uh, on the whole place. Well, that, that furthers another question, and I'll, I'll ask it to both of you, but but I'll, I'll start with Jonathan and, and Enrique first. I, you know, we're, I'm sure you're doing a screening type questionnaire, right, or asking those questions when they walk in the door. Are you sick? Do you have a fever? All those, all that good stuff. And I, and I probably, you're probably asking, you know, do you have COVID, right? Have you tested positive for COVID or have you been exposed to somebody? So what are you doing with those people who answer yes? Maybe they say, yeah, I had COVID, but it was three weeks ago. Or yeah, I was exposed to my uncle two weeks ago, but I never got sick. What What are you, and there's no right or wrong answer, right? I mean, what, what are you doing? Are you allowing those customers to go ahead and continue? Are you asking that they show you a, a test result? What? How are you handling that situation? So actually what we're doing with that is we're, we're, uh, we're sending that via text because we have a personal relationship with all of our clients so it's more of a text and anticipation we don't want to do that that same day you're you know, for, for the upcoming right. appointment um yeah. i personally have a client who uh i hadn't seen but she messaged me just to let me know that she did have covid and before she was able to come in and make an appointment she sent me a picture of the screenshot of the result that finally came negative and then she was, uh, I don't want to say allowed, but that's when we finally made her appointment. Sure, sure. What about you, Coach Vic? How are you guys handling screening? Not me again. Here we go. <laughs> on, on, the employee, on the employee side, if they have come in contact, uh, we allow them to go get tested. We'll hold them off the schedule until we're confident that they have a negative test result. Um, and we've been been fine with that and really no one bats an eye at that they all agree and understand why 
And then on the member side, if it were to come up, we may have to handle it on an individual member basis uh, when they came in contact and or if they had uh, positive results. Uh, because everybody's just a little bit different in regards to whether they had symptoms or didn't have symptoms. If they did have symptoms, most of them, we put them on a freeze and, and just ask them nicely to stay home. I don't think anybody really would come back twice at it. Most of the people who have come back for us as well haven't had any um, any concerns. Yeah. Coming, they've been very forward, especially since we're asking at the door. They know they're kind of going to get pop quiz before they come through. <laughs> gotcha. Christy, did you have a comment? I did. It's a follow-up question. Maybe Coach Vic already alluded to this, but um, for all the guests, I was curious how cooperative your clients have been through this whole process you know and maybe Enrique maybe it's going to take longer to make an appointment now because of the new um setup and so for both you know both establishments in terms of the safeguards how cooperative are are your clients well first we've been we've been getting uh yeah we we came back with a pretty strong percentage of our member base uh pre-covid uh Close to 65, 70% right out the gate came through and continue to get new traffic um, day by day. So we're doing pretty well with it. And for the most part, because we've been so forward with everything that we're doing, we're blasting it on social media, we're making member care calls, we are talking about it as part of our announcements within the studios, and they see that we're going the extra step from you know spraying everybody down and cleaning in between. I have a nice beautiful janitorial looking cart that we pull out <laughs> after every class so the members see that and by presenting it and having it out in front they've all been very cooperative we've had uh, a great pool of positivity as well we noticed that throughout this entire time when we were all stuck in our house that we really need community and working out and being out with people so the majority of the people that have come through uh the vast majority have been have been positive our clients have been very cooperative. Uh, I, I feel that everybody takes it very serious. And especially because we're the owners of the salon, uh, the feedback that we get back is that they understand that even if they're not scared, that they recognize that there's other clients of other stylists who might be thinking completely differently. And so uh, everybody's very respectful of the rules and uh, very cooperative. Excellent. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I, I mean, I would I, anecdotally, I would say the same here, you know, in our healthcare facility, you know, most 99.9% .9 of the people are willing to do what they need to do and what the guidelines are. You would, you, you know, you had that point one person that thinks this is all a conspiracy and, you know, does, doesn't want to do anything, but those are few and far between. So that, that that's great to hear on, on the personal care establishments as well. That you're seeing that same feedback. Uh, another question that came in, uh, probably directed uh, to, to Dr. Emery, what's the best way to, to treat a used surgical mask or N95 for reuse? Uh, do you, you dispose of them in a biohazard ways? Can you toss them in the trash? What do you do with one after you've used it? Uh, okay, so uh, let's just make sure. So um, here's the Bob Emery official <laughs> surgical mask, and uh, these are designed to be thrown away. Um, uh, so you, you, there's really no way you can reprocess them. I don't have a cloth mask here. Uh, wait a minute, I do. Um, the, these are uh, so these are the ones that are um, you you can wash you know get ho at home, wash in soap and water, 
hang it up to dry, you're, you're in good shape. But none of these, unless they were visibly stained with blood or something like that, they would, they would not be required to go into a biohazard box. Um, uh, but and I am noticing more and more litter around the uh, medical center where we're seeing these masks. Maybe they blow out of somebody's car, or there's gloves, and and that that so the optics of what one might refer to as medical waste, but it's actually you know some sort of protective equipment, but it's now littering around the streets. That's that's going to be with us for a while. I, it got me thinking about I'll show my age because I'm looking at everybody on this webinar. I remember way back when, when the soda cans, the pop top came out, right? I mean, the whole thing came out and then they were, they were littered everywhere, right? And, and so eventually that all went away because now the soda can, you know, or the beer can, the thing you know, goes inside there. So in the same way, I'm wondering how long this medical waste piece is gonna be with us here as these things, as I see them blowing around the parking lot and, and that sort of stuff. But short, short answer is, uh, I don't, uh, unless it's visibly contaminated with blood, which would be an odd experience, uh, it wouldn't need to go in a biohazard. Okay. Janelle? Yeah, so let me jump in here because um, I spent a good part of my career working for the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and I happen to be the medical waste inspector, uh, or <laughs> well, it was called back then. So unless you're working in the healthcare industry or you're working, for example, a research project and actually working with an infectious pathogen, it is not deemed medical waste. It's not regulated medical waste. So even if it was soiled with blood, it would not be considered medical waste if it's not um, generated in healthcare or a research facility. And there's actually a nice big long definition that the state of Texas has. Um, but if it is soiled with blood, you definitely want to be very careful and, and remove this and carefully so that you don't uh, contaminate your hands and, and put it in the trash. Um, this is meant to be uh, disposable. So if you wear it the first time, uh, you want to put it on very carefully by, by holding onto the straps, never ever touching the inside because remember the inside goes up against your face. Um, and then you don't you don't want to touch the the outer part either because that consider it contaminated. Um, but this is meant to be disposable um, and not really you can't really disinfect it. Um, as Bob was mentioning, this this is an N95 respirator. We because this is meant to be disposable, but we had so few of them we were disinfecting them. And I think the temperature is something like 121 degrees for 30 minutes. I think it's 165. I'm sorry, 165 degrees. Oh, thank you for clarifying. Okay. Um, so, if, if, uh, I can, if I can jump in there for a second, because uh -huh. I, I probably should have covered this. Uh, there's, there's three ways, kind of three ways that one can disinfect. If, if one goes down the, the pathway of, of needing to, if we have another surge and now we get a short, a, a, a subsequent shortage of N95s, just so you know, there's three ways that, that uh, they can be. Uh, disinfected and reused. One is applying heat, which you just described, and so there's been a big push on having uh, almost these easy bake ovens, <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, that uh, 165 degrees for I think it's 20 minutes. And and there's published papers on these, by the way, on this. Uh, that was one. The second one is exposure to UV light, so 258 uh, eight nanometer wavelength UV light, and I don't remember the dwell time on that. 
Uh, and then the third one is vapor phase hydrogen peroxide. So you're seeing uh, hospitals in particular uh, using these three different techniques to stretch the supply of the finite number of, of uh, N95s until such time as the supply chain can catch up. And then, but, but I think your point, Janelle, is well taken. We see another a spike or another curve, we could be right back in the same mess with a limited PPE. Excellent, excellent. Well, we, I see we're down to our last five minutes here, so um, we'll start to kind of wrap up. We want to thank all of our attendees for joining. We especially want to thank all of our guest panelists today. Um, you know, I don't think there's, I mean, I think to make a general assumption, I think everybody's got to have a haircut, right, at some point. Yeah. And, and most of us, and most of us do some sort of exercising, if not go to a. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think this was a great, uh, uh, a great program to present today. So we appreciate your feedback and your guidance. I think it sounds like your establishments could be a role model for other other uh, personal care uh, facilities looking for some guidance. So we appreciate that. Uh, we hope that you, 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 and your team and your Patrons all say stay safe and healthy, um, and uh, sounds like you're doing as much as you can do right now. So we appreciate yeah. that. Um, Bob, I think this is our last of our series, right? Uh, well, we had bantered about the notion of doing one more supplemental one about what to anticipate uh, next, and I've, I've made some jotted notes, uh, but I we'll have to have a side conversation on that. But sure. I think it would be the last scheduled one. Well, yeah. I, was I? Oh, oh do, do we have one more? Oh, we have one more next week. Healthcare or, or uh, other healthcare like dentists. And right. You're right. You're right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I was hoping we weren't done yet. So yeah. uh, feel free to join us same time, same place next week. And we'll talk about uh, some more additional healthcare facilities and make sure people are safe in those facilities. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up again. Everybody that was on and registered for this webinar will receive uh, the slides we will be you will also receive a link to the actual recorded video so you can watch this again or send it to to some uh, some colleagues of yours who maybe didn't get a catch it today uh, so everybody should have access to all of the content so uh, we appreciate everybody jumping on today we again thanks to our guest panelists thanks to our, uh, our routine panelists on there and we will see you guys back next week thank you thank you everybody bye-bye